Let us rise for the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the, and the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city, city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, if you haven't noticed already, <clears throat> in the string of messages, or what we have been talking about or going over, if you haven't noticed already, then let me state it outright. Christians are political. Christians are political. In fact, throughout history, Christians have made this most divisive political statement. That is, Jesus is Lord. Christians have made this most divisive and political statement throughout history. Jesus is Lord. In fact, he is the King of kings and Lord of Lords. For us, it would mean that he is the president of presidents. All are subject to his lordship, and if they do not obey, it is God who will judge. All political leaders' authority has been granted to them by the sovereign God so that they would enact his righteous laws by punishing the wrongdoer, like it says in Romans 13, 4, 
And this is what our passage today, this morning, kind of reminds us of. Kings are chosen by God. And therefore, if they're chosen by God, they will be judged by God. We are mistaken if we think that only a theocratic nation should follow God's laws and commands. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, this is what he meant. He meant all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. This is why Christians around the world would proclaim the lordship of Christ and his second coming because they will either repent and turn from their wicked ways or they will pile up for themselves even greater judgment on that day. When we are taught the ways of Christ, it isn't only for us to know, but for us to go and make disciples, teaching them to know and obey those very things that we have been taught. And so Christians from the first century have went, since the first century, have went to kings Even Caesar, there's a Christian legend that Mary Magdalene in the audience of Tiberius Caesar would greet him saying, Christ is risen. Christ is risen is a very political statement. Christ is risen, that means that he has conquered death, that he owns death. Everything that we see that the leaders are afraid of, that they are trying to protect us from, What we are saying is Christ has defeated already. What we do involves not only the home and church, but the public sphere of governance as well. That's what I mean by politics. When people are like, what do you mean by politics? It means Christ is Lord over every sphere of life. And this is what is is proclaimed in the pulpit every Sunday when the minister goes up. He is saying that Christ is Lord. Every sphere of life is under the dominion of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what I want us to start with, to kind of have this in mind as we go through this chapter. God is sovereign over every single sphere of life. He is not something that we ought to separate, segregate, to compartmentalize, But when he is God, and he is God, he's God over everything. And so this morning, we come to a pivotal chapter in the book of 1 Samuel. There are four points here in this chapter that we'll go through. And the four points are hope, wisdom, surprise, and contrast. Hope, wisdom, surprise, and contrast. First, hope. So what happens when the leader of a nation goes bad? What happens then? In the days in the land that is ruled by this leader, though, those days will be darkened. If the leader goes bad, the land that is ruled by this leader is darkened. The beginning of this chapter opens up with Samuel grieving or mourning over Saul because the Lord would ask Samuel about his grief. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? And the question we should ask is, why was Saul mourning, though? Was it because of something he had done? Was it a failure, perhaps, on his part? 
Was it a lack, perhaps, of even the fulfillment that he wanted in his ministry? And the answer is to no to all of these questions, because it says he was grieving over Saul. It was such a deep grief and sorrow over Saul's rebellion and rejection. Saul had such promise. He had such potential. And he began his kingship well, too. He began his term as king well. But with the leader now in rebellion, it was only a matter of time before the disintegration of the entire nation. When the leader is corrupt, when he is in outright outright rebellion against God, it is only a matter of time before God judges the entire nation. Samuel, of all people, knew how important leaders were. With poor leaders, the surrounding nations become emboldened. There is discord within the ranks of its armies. The people are divided without clear guidance. And so when God speaks to Samuel, he is answering then Samuel's grief and fears. He tells Samuel to fill his horn with oil and go. God is going to send him to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, because he sees a king for himself among Jesse's sons. God was going to provide for his people a new king. God wasn't done with his people. He was not going to let them go. However, we should not move on too quickly from Samuel's grief. He isn't upset over some trifling matter. He wasn't sad that he didn't get that job or house that he wanted, or sad over his kid not getting into the school that he wanted them to get into. He was distressed because the disaster of a once promising instrument of God meant looming disaster for the nation. He was in fear of what would happen to God's nation and his people if this deterioration were to continue. And that's what we should also think and reflect over as well. Do we mourn over such matters? Do we mourn over failed leadership? Are we grieved when our nation's leaders are corrupt? or when prominent church leaders fail? Are we grieved when professing believers live a publicly unrepentant and sinful life? Or are we just angered, and do we just virtue signal our anger in the public square? Are we just angry, and do we just tweet about it, or post on our social medias? Or... Does it drive us to prayer? How many of us were propelled into prayer when we heard of the shootings in the recent days and weeks? How many of us thought to attend the prayer meetings of the church to plead with God for mercy? Or have you also been convinced into thinking that we no longer need prayer in this country, schools, and homes? And so Samuel's heart is instructive to us even today. But there's also something hopeful in the Lord's response to Samuel. This isn't just some empty platitude. God isn't saying to Samuel, oh, keep your chin up. You got this. 
believe in yourself or the answer is inside you. You just have to look deeper, Samuel. God doesn't just yell, do something to Samuel either. He doesn't want Samuel to do any random thing or anything as if that would do anything. But God, when he goes to Samuel, gives specific and clear instructions through his word because God never loses control of what belongs to him. He isn't shaken or flustered by the latest crisis in the land. He is going to provide a new start for his people. They will not be left alone to be ravaged by the hostile forces around them or to be eaten up from the inside because the true king never loses control of his kingdom. And so his instructions are there for Samuel and for us to give us hope. God's word gives us hope. However, Samuel surmised that by following the Lord's instruction, his life would be in danger. And so he says that to God. And so God gives Samuel even further instruction. And he gives him what our second point is. He gives to Samuel wisdom. That's our second point. Wisdom. Jesse's sons come in line to the sacrifice. And immediately when Samuel saw his first son, Eliab, he thought, that's got to be him. And for Samuel to think that, you would think that Eliab was probably even better looking than Saul. His resume must have been stacked, maybe even taller than Saul, definitely carried himself better than Saul. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely is a marker of emphasis. Surely this is it. And if Samuel, a wise sage of God, thought so, I'm sure everyone around him must have thought to some degree as well. He must have had it all. Samuel had his horn of oil ready, but God says to him in verse 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Elia may have mesmerized others, even Samuel, but God was not impressed. While we can only look on outward appearances, we're human. We can only look at the outward appearances. God is showing us that he can see the heart. And thankfully so. It is in our benefit that he's able to do so and that he does so. Now, what I should also mention is that this doesn't mean that if you're good-looking or smart or tall or strong, this means you're disqualified. God is not saying that you being ugly or dumb would qualify you for service. What it means that is that externalities do not qualify or disqualify a person. To God, it's the heart that matters. God can use you in your good-lookingness, but God can also use you in your ugliness, all for his glory. He can use your intelligence or lack thereof for his glory. What matters to God, what we are being taught, is the heart. In Exodus 4.11, when Moses went in before God, Moses was like, well, I don't have these externalities. I don't have the resume. I can't speak well. How would you use someone like me? Don't pick me. Pick someone else. Pick my brother. He's much better. He's much more eloquent than I am. 
In Exodus 4.11, this is what the Lord said to Moses. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? What matters most is the heart. So when we look for leaders, even in this church, what are we asking for? Who do you look for? Do you want to be impressed with externalities? Or do we ask God to help us discern the heart? When we look for leaders in the church, do we get excited about those who have charisma over care, riches over resilience, passion over prayer? You could be rich because of your resilience, but being rich doesn't mean you necessarily are resilient. Do we ask for leaders that can pray? Do we ask for leaders that will be Christ-like as they serve? So this gives us reason to praise God because even though we may be enamored by the external, God saves us from this blindness to see. He saves us from our own choices, our own self-appointed saviors. This leads us to the surprise, our third point. Samuel is now going down the list of Jesse's sons, and they are being rejected one after another. And in verse 10, he says that the Lord has not chosen these. And because this must have been puzzling for Samuel, because God told Samuel that it would be one of Jesse's sons, he asks Jesse, do you have another son somewhere? And apparently this son of Jesse that wasn't there was so obscure that Jesse in the passage here would just refer to him as the youngest. This is just the youngest. He's not here. He's tending to some sheep, some farm animals. So Samuel tells Jesse to get him and even goes as far as telling everyone, you're not going to even sit until he gets here. Once he gets there, even though he was the least likely to be picked, the scriptures show us that he was, in fact, good-looking and ruddy. The word for ruddy in the Hebrew is like the color red. So David had this like reddish hue about his skin, probably referred, referring to something like Esau. When Esau was born, he was red. And so we know of the two twins, Esau and Jacob in Genesis, Esau was the stronger and healthier one. So I would take it as David was reddish or ruddy, brimming with health. And that's why it's translated as ruddy. He was brimming with health. He had really good-looking eyes, and he was handsome. So there are these three superlatives given to David. And when he came, the Lord tells Samuel, it's this guy. Once again, and many times after this, we see God choosing someone that leaves the rest of us sometimes scratching our heads. It's because our God is not bound by our standards. He isn't subject to what we think is right. God is the standard, and he teaches us that we ought to conform to him. So Samuel takes the horn of oil that he had prepared and anoints him right then and there. But here is the important part of this. It says that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When God chose David for kingship, 
he also equipped him for the work. He appoints his servants and ministers to the task, but he also equips them to fulfill that task. And so many of you know David's story. You may have grew up, uh, grown up hearing about him. And so you know that the task that David will face is severe. It's not going to be easy serving God. There is going to be, for David, what seems to be like an endless stream of trouble. And hopefully you will also remember that God will give to David what he needs in those times of trouble. David will be hunted. He will be betrayed. He'll go into hiding. He'll live in exile. He'll be cursed at, scorned, ridiculed. It's almost as if, and if you, if you look at this and look at other passages, it's almost as if as soon as you're called and you're even equipped, trouble seems to find you right away. This is also the case of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right after he was baptized by John the Baptist, where the Father would say to Jesus, when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus, the heavens would open up and the Father would say, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God would descend upon him like a dove. So after this incredible call and equipping that we see, what immediately happens to Jesus? It says in the word of God that the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. It would be a mistake to think that once you're chosen for a task, that everything will be hunky-dory for you. In fact, the pattern that we see in the scriptures is that the wilderness is not the absence of God's presence, but it is the evidence of his discipline. And God disciplines those that he loves. So Jesus was pushed into the wilderness. He was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit after that call, the affirmation and the equipping, right? But Jesus perfectly passes those tests. But we are also given tests. We're not perfect like Jesus, but what these tests do is these tests shape us, they mold us, they sanctify us. David didn't become a great king in one day. In fact, we will read that it will be many, many years before David would be anointed or reign as king. At this time, at this reading, David, scholars project that David was probably around 10 to 15 years of age when he was anointed by Samuel. And I would think that he was probably, and this is my guess, that he was probably even, not even 13 yet. So imagine that, one of our 12-year-olds being anointed as king. And that's why they would consider him a boy. Maybe that's why they didn't even like, think to call him up with the other brothers. And he was around 10 to 15, probably less than 13, and David started his reign at the age of 30. Those are many years that passed by until he would reign. The anointing and the reign has much room in between. So why would God anoint David 
as king and not set him up to reign until more than a decade later. Why would God set his children up, appoint them to the task, equip them, and not have them in that position until many days, weeks, months, even years later? And the answer is that the Lord disciplines He prepares us for what is to come. Some of you can relate to this because as soon as you place your faith in God, ease didn't come your way. Hardships made its way to you with a quickness. It doesn't mean you're under God's wrath, but under his discipline. He uses the wilderness to strengthen his people, not destroy them. Yes, even for many of you, it will seem as though once you did get that fire in your heart to serve, you even believe you've been gifted in those capacities that you won't, might not serve for a while, perhaps God is then preparing you. This is the Lord's loving discipline. Many of you have journeyed with me personally where I started my pastoral process at the age of 30 and yet didn't get ordained as minister until seven years later. And during that time, during that time, it seemed like forever. People were asking me so many times, like, when are you going to get ordained? Is there something wrong? What's going on? It's only seven years now when you look back, but during those seven years, it seemed like forever, and many of you can attest to that. There were many twists and turns in my ministerial journey that I didn't expect, and yet here I am, but here I am only by the grace of God. The last point is contrast. Now, in our Bibles, verses 13 and 14 are separated by a paragraph and even a section title, but in the writing of the scroll, so in the original writings, verse numbers or even chapter numbers and section titles did not exist. These came at a later time. So when you'll be reading this, you will be reading verse 13 and 14 together in one stream, one string without any break. And that's when we read it together, you couldn't help but to notice the stark contrast between David and Saul. While the Spirit of God rushed upon David from that day forward, in verse 14 it says, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. See, these verses are put together. And not only these verses, even these chapters that we are seeing here, chapter 15 was the rejection of Saul, and chapter 16 is the anointing of David. The rejection of Saul and the anointing of David are contrasted here over and over again. And when Saul and David finally meet together in verse 21... We are shown that the rejected king obtains relief from the anointed king. Saul even chooses David to be his armor bearer, and it says that he loved him greatly. The rejected king, unknowingly and ironically so, chooses the newly anointed king because it's David's music that brings Saul back from his torment and terror. The contrast is given here to show us that the anointed king is a means of grace to even the rejected king. That's something that we can't miss. David and his music keeps Saul from completely falling apart. So even 
though Saul is rejected as king, this shows us how incredible the grace of God is. Why would God show us this? Perhaps it's to show us a pattern that God continues even to this very day. David is being used here as a minister to console the spirit of Saul. In the same way, this should prove instructive to us who would follow Christ. The world will eventually hate you if it doesn't already. It won't like the things that you'll have to say because what you say will be political. It will. Jesus is Lord. Jesus rules over you, Mr. President, or king, or queen, or governor, or statesman, or senator, congressman. Jesus rules over you. And Saul will eventually end up hating David and even try to kill him as well. But Christ tells his disciples to be what? Christ tells his disciples to be a salt and light in this world. God has given us grace so that we in turn might also dispense grace to the world, even if it was bound for destruction. Because salt keeps the culture from rotting into complete decay, and light shines along the path so that you wouldn't fall into a ditch during the night. God put Christians in this world to keep it from completely collapsing on itself like a dying star. When a star collapses in on itself, it creates a black hole. And as far as we know now, with what we know, it's a single point where even light can't escape and everything gets sucked up into nothingness. It is a truly fearsome and terrible sight when a star collapses on itself. For the nation to stay strong, for the people to be restrained from further evil, for the world to not fall into further moral decay, the church must be strong. God has given us the charge to be salt and light, to show the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, to dispense grace that we have also been given. We are witnesses of his divine mercy, and that means we must go out and proclaim the good news. We must proclaim the gospel, not some secular agenda. We don't get worked up over these half-hearted, nonsensical political solutions to solve our problems. We know that the deep issue that humanity faces is the torment of the heart. And so we have been equipped with the gospel to proclaim. That's how you can be a salt and light. Proclaim God's word. Live out by the power of the Holy Spirit, his commands. And when the gospel is proclaimed and his precepts are lived out, that's when the world is changed. This is what we've seen throughout history. Orphanages were started by Christians. Hospitals were started by Christians. Schools and universities were started by Christians. Harvard, the first university in the United States, was founded to train clergy. Now let me get back to the point in the beginning. The point isn't that you change the world. The point is that your heart is changed. Without a changed heart, 
you are just as lost as Saul. That's why you ought to ask the Lord to change your heart. And the Lord is gracious. In Psalm 51, 17 says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And if God is convicting your heart, do not tarry from giving your life to him. This is how we give our life to God. We repent and we become baptized. And if you want to learn more, I ask that you continue to talk to me or talk to any one of our elders and we will share with you what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to repent and be baptized. But for those that are already in the service of Christ, know that when we gather in Jesus' name, we are gathering in the presence of the King of Kings. He's the one that calls and equips us to do the task that he has set us out to do. This is not an optional assignment. This is the great commission of our Lord and Savior. We must go out and make disciples of all nations teaching them to obey everything that he has taught us. That's the great commission that we have been given. And he promises us this, that as we follow him, he will never leave us. He will always be with us to the end of the age. So praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his grace. And remember the commission that you have been given as servants of God to go out and make disciples. Let's pray.